You know, speaking of being aware of, of the Holy Spirit's presence and promptings, I felt that during that one song that we sang about your love never fails, that God was just laying on my heart to encourage all of us that maybe there's somebody that the Lord has already or could lay on our hearts that we could just be a reminder to that person that God loves them, that they need to hear that, that they, they need that reaffirmation and reassurance that God loves them and, and we love them too. So often um, we can sort of drown in, in the things of life and sometimes the most important thing we need to remind ourselves of is God loves us and uh, that we are loved too. So, uh, and I need to take that advice myself and pray about and God, who, who would you want me to contact and encourage about loving, being loved by you and loved by others? We are continuing our series on Wednesday night in the book of Acts. And tonight we are in Acts chapter 6. The book of Acts is Christ's vision for his church. Several weeks ago when we started this series back over at Basha, I was reminding all of us that the church is not man's idea, it's Jesus' idea. He said, I will build my church, my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Paul tells us in Ephesians that Christ is the head of the church. Therefore, it is not to be our vision, if you will, that guides the church and what the church is to be. It is to be that we are to look to Christ and see what is his vision for his people. And I really believe that it was very strategic, obviously, that God led me to this series in the book of Acts as we sort of transitioned from our old home to our new home because it's a great reminder to us about what God is looking for in his people. And we sort of talked about that even from the book of Isaiah on Sunday. But tonight, as we enter into Acts chapter 6, one of the things that I see here that God wants to see in his people is that he wants to see us be problem solvers. Because we're going to see here in Acts chapter 6 that because of the growth of the church, a problem arose, an issue came up. And God is not going to prevent problems and issues and challenges and obstacles coming up in our life. That's part of life. And obviously, that's even part of growth. It's actually a good thing, you see. But what separates a lot of times God's people doing it the right way or God's people doing it the wrong way is back to how we respond to those issues when they come up. How do we tackle those problems when they come? And what we're going to see tonight is that the early church handled this problem very well, so well that God continued to bless the church after he saw that they had handled it the way that they did. Let's look first of all at Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in those days, days where there was a lot of growth going on in the church, the disciples were growing in number. Let me stop there. Let's remember, too, that the book of Acts is very um, much geared in to reminding us that it wasn't believers <laughs> that were growing in number. It was disciples that were growing in number. There's a difference. 
Jesus Christ's commission to his church in Matthew was go and make disciples, not go and just get people to believe. Because it was never Christ's vision just to get people saved. That is just the beginning. That is not the end. The vision that Christ has for his church is that we all become disciples. And a disciple is a learner. A disciple is one that is a devoted follower. A disciple is one who is obviously, if they're a learner, then they've got to be teachable. Sad to say, I have run into so many Christians over the years that feel like they know everything. And it's hard to teach them anything. I think I have a hard time with that because I've been studying the Bible pretty diligently for 45 plus years, and I learn something every day. Every day I learn something, if I'm open to it. Now, not every day am I open to it. So a disciple is distinctive from a believer. And God wants to see his church filled not with just believers, but with disciples. So the disciples were growing in number, and growth is good. Growth is a sign of health, not just spiritual growth, but physical growth. It's, you know, that's a good thing. But let's make no mistake about it, and we as a church are experiencing that as well. With growth comes issues. With growth, things will arise. And then we got to go, oh, now this is happening. So it's not that we shouldn't grow, but that we realize that as we grow, both spiritually and physically, there's going to be things that we have to deal with, and that was true of the early church as well. So the Bible says, a complaint arose on the part of the Greek-speaking Jews against the native Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. An issue came up. But here's what I want you to see already. The church is not that old. And yet, did you notice something in verse 1? The church was already sort of starting to enter into little factions and being fractured instead of unified. There were the Greek-speaking Jews and there were the Hebraic-speaking Jews. We're all supposed to be part of the body. It's so easy for us, even as God's people, to sort of divide into little groups. And, and again, not that we can't have in the church people that we're closer to than others. There's nothing wrong with that. And I, I, I do chafe whenever I hear certain Christians say, well, there's cliques. Well, maybe that's just a group of friends getting together. That's not a clique. But, but there is the danger amongst Christians of sort of, sort of separating ourselves in, in certain ways from from others just because of, of affinities, Greek-speaking, Hebrew-speaking, you know, whatever divides us. And that's part of why we've even designed the Oasis to be a church where we don't try to divide out into everything that we do and that we have programs where the old can never be with the young and where the males can never be with the females and, and, and where married people can't be with single people. Because in a lot of churches... They just divide people out, and they never get to mix. And to me, that is not a true reflection of the church. The church is to be one. 
And the Bible even tells us that Jesus Christ came and died to, to get that wall of partition that can so divide us at times to be torn down so that even Gentiles and Jews who are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ can actually coexist and not just coexist, but actually get along and form one new body, Paul says in the book of Ephesians, so that there is no more this faction over here and this faction over here. But you see it, it happened real early on. It's something that you and I have to be aware of because Christ's vision for his church is not only that it be filled with disciples, but that it be unified and that we do not allow minor things to divide us and to cause separation, but that we learn to come together and cooperate and complement with each other and participate and join together. So what was the issue? Well, the issue was that there were widows that were not receiving food, and that's an important thing. James tells us that pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is that we take care of orphans and widows. It's one of our primary responsibilities is to make sure that those folks are taken care of, especially if they don't have family to watch over them. So, notice what they did. The 12 called the whole group of the disciples together. Now, that's important. They didn't just have a committee meeting. They didn't just meet as leaders. They called everybody together. Because why? Because everybody needed to be on board with this. Everybody needed to be satisfied. Because what couldn't happen, especially at this early stage of the church, was that there would be a decision made, but this group over here really didn't like it, and then they started to whisper, and, and they started to, to sort of uh, undermine, you know, what was going on, and, and again, then the church starts to fracture because they're not on board with it. They needed to come together as a whole group and say, can we come to a conclusion about how we should take care of these widows to where everyone is okay with it and we can move on to other things. Sometimes that's what doesn't happen. Sometimes there's always something that just hangs out there, whether it's in a church because we haven't dealt with it, in our own lives that we haven't dealt with, and they were going to deal with this. They were going to deal with it fully. They were going to deal with it decisively. They were going to deal with it to where it would please everybody so that it could, we could move on. That's Christ's vision. That, that's handling a problem, a situation, an issue from a biblical perspective. But now notice what the 12 say to the entire group of disciples. It is not right for us to neglect the word of God to wait on tables. Oh, my. So much we need to talk about about this. The word right is a really key word. Notice what the apostles are saying. They're not saying that they are beneath waiting on tables or taking care of widows. That's not what they're saying. They're not saying that widows shouldn't be taken care of. That's obvious, or they wouldn't have called this meeting. What they are declaring is this, and all of us in the church, we need to get this. What they are saying is that God has called us to a certain ministry, to have a certain responsibility, to play a certain part in his body. 
And it is not upon us just because now we are made aware of this need to somehow lay aside the responsibility, the mantle, if you will, the calling that God has placed upon us in order to take care of that because then we are neglecting what God has called us to do. It's not for us to let go of our responsibility. It's up to us to find others who will be willing to take on that responsibility. That is so key today because so many Christians, first of all, have this struggle with if they are made aware of a need, even in the church, they feel like they've got to be the one to take care of it. No. No, what, what should happen first is that you have a clear understanding of what part you are to play in the body. What your role is, what your responsibility, that's where it starts. Because if you are sure, like the apostles were sure, of what their role and responsibility was, then you will not be pulled away from your responsibility that God wants you to take care of because he doesn't want someone else taking care of it. That's why he called you to do it, to take care of this. What God wants us to do in that case is to try to find somebody else who's maybe not having a particular part to play yet or responsibility to take care of that need. Because God wants us to live as his children, narrowing the focus of our lives. Because that's the only way that we can do the things that God has called us to do well and excellently. That's why you'll notice in verse 4, a key verse, and it's actually a verse that I have used for 35 years to sort of guide me in my pastoral ministry, to stay on track rather than to get distracted and get off track and get busy doing other things besides what God's called me to, and only what God has called me to do, maybe somebody else can take care of it. The, the, the apostles say, we will devote ourselves, key word, devote. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. In other words, here's what God has given us responsibility to do. And if we don't keep devoting ourselves to that, if somehow we get distracted, think of even Nehemiah. They wanted to bring him down off the wall, and Nehemiah says, I'm doing a great work. I can't get, come down right now. The, it, you, we have to have that kind of tenacity when it comes to holding on to the calling and responsibility and part that God has given us. Otherwise, too easily we will be pulled away from what God only wants us to be doing. Then what happens is we go over here to try to help, but then that's neglected. And that can't happen, you see. So... What is it that God wants you to be devoted to? What is it that would not be right for you to leave in order to help somewhere else in the church or with some other need? See, that's where it starts. Because, again, part of the issue with the church today is so many Christians come in and because we're not growing disciples, we're just getting people to the salvation point they don't even know what part they're to play or if they're to play a part at all. If they're to plug into some ministry or service, anyway, they don't know and they're never encouraged to do that and to really be sure of what is my calling? What does God want me to do in his body? Am I to play the part of the finger, the hand, the arm, the leg? That's why God 
illustrates his church as a body because all of us are to have some kind of function in the body so that the body can truly function at its highest capacity. So the apostles were very settled, if you will, on what part they were to play. What they were going to do was to see to it, though, that this need was met because notice at the end of verse 3, it was a necessary task. Whom will we put in charge of this necessary task? Now, that's another key. One of the other things God wants to see in his people is that we separate the necessities from the not necessities. Too often, we as individuals and we as a church can get caught up in things that really aren't essential. And then what that does is take us away from the time, the energy, and the effort we could put towards the essential. Again, because God wants to narrow the focus of our life. You and I might think that we can do 20 things really, really well. That might be what lie we're telling ourselves, and we live in a world where it's all about the multitasking, and I can do 10 things at a time, but I'm telling you, from the authority of the Word of God, you will not find that philosophy of living life in the Bible. What you find is just the opposite. God says, find one or two things that I have really laid on your heart, that is the passion of your heart, that is you feel your calling and your responsibility in the Bible, and you pour everything you've got into those few things. Then you will find a lot of fruit and a great harvest eventually coming from pouring yourself in to just a few things, being the master of something. Think of music, you know, Someone who's a, a master violinist, plays in a symphony orchestra. They're not there every day, seven days a week, playing 20 different instruments. They have learned to master that one instrument, and they practice it every day. And they are the number one violin in the row because that is their instrument. They carry it everywhere they go. They, they don't leave home without it, and they just continually just get fine-tuned and get better and better and better and better at it, you see. That's what God wants to see in his people, that we will latch on to those few things that God wants us to pour ourselves into, and that over time, we will get really, really, really efficient, effective in those few things. That was the apostles. So part of that is separating again what's essential, what is necessary from what's not really essential and not necessary. And according to the apostles, this was a necessary thing that they had to take care of. So notice what they did. Verse 3, the advice. Carefully, not flippantly, not quickly, whatever, Carefully select from among you, brothers, seven men who are well attested, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this necessary task. A couple things. First of all, notice they didn't go outside the church. They stayed within the church to find what they needed. I am convinced 
that a church that is operating by the vision that Christ has will never go outside of itself to try to find people to fill what God wants that church to do. If God wants us as a church to do something, then God will bring in the people in the church to make sure that that need is met. If there's nobody to meet that need, if there's not enough people to meet that need, then to me, that's not something that we should pursue. But we should not go outside to try to find enough people to do it. Among you, find them among you. And then notice, again, carefully select. Now to us, especially in our modern day churches, again, we can compartmentalize things. We can go, oh, you know what? When you have an upfront ministry, you know, you're the pastor, you're the worship leader, or you, you're on the platform or whatever, you gotta, we, we gotta really be careful about who we put in charge of those ministries. But, but ministries that are behind the scenes, just, you know, serving, serving widows and stuff, we can be a little less stringent. Do you notice something? The early church didn't feel that way. They were looking for people of the highest caliber to wait on tables and bring food to widows. It wasn't just like, well, anybody can do that, so let's just get anybody to do it. No, and here's the reason why. Because Christ's vision for his church is that no matter what we do, there is no such thing as some small little ministry, some small little task, some, something that can just sort of throw away and get anybody to do it. That's why I, I think just God just like cringes when you have churches and people just getting up, just begging people to, to fill in for a ministry. And we'll, we'll take anybody, any, anybody just, just, if you're willing to do it, let's just do it. And it's like, really? We're just going to take anybody? Instead of really being serious and carefully selecting from among us the very, very best. And here's why. Because no matter what ministry it is in the church, if we don't put competent, high-caliber pe high people in any ministry, it can cause problems. It can blow up on you real fast. And just like other organizations, the church is only as strong as its weakest link. And that's why the early church, under the direction, I believe, of the Holy Spirit, says, we just can't select anybody to wait on tables. We got to select the cream of the crop that we've got that isn't already plugged in somewhere. By the way, just reminds me, the church should never be looked at as an organization. The church of Jesus Christ is a living organism. It breathes. And Jesus Christ is our head, which is why God says that the church is, is illustrated like a body because literally we are a living, breathing organism. If, if people think that the church is a, primarily a, uh, an organization, then it becomes very institutionalized very quickly and it starts to die very quickly. The way you keep life in a church, any church or any life, is by realizing it's a living, breathing organism fed by its head, the Lord Jesus Christ, and gets its life from him. So, after they say, we will devote ourselves to the prayer and ministry of the word, notice, the proposal pleased the entire group. That may be the only time that ever happened in church history. <laughs> but the cool thing was that the way they handled this 
It was like, yeah, that's a great idea. We can get, along, we can get on board with that. So that, again, they could, in a sense, put that issue to rest, to bed, and move on to other things that God had called them to do. See, what Satan, though, will try to do is he tries to derail the church, get us distracted, get us start to fight with each other because we, we can't solve these issues or resolve these issues and these problems, and they just sort of hang around, and then it prevents us all from really diving in and staying focused on what God has called us to do because we've always got to go putting out fires everywhere, you see. And that's not how God wants his people to live, both in the church and even outside the church. God wants you to be able to solve those problems and move forward and move ahead rather than have those fires continually burning, to be decisive about it and to move forward. That's leadership under the Holy Spirit. So, notice, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, with Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a Gentile convert to Judaism from Antioch. By the way, it's very interesting, and I don't think it's something that we should gloss over, that they chose all seven men were Greek-speaking because the complaint came from who? The Greek-speakers. Okay, you've got the problem, then you guys take care of it. There's something to be said for that, you see? That's what they did. Now, we all know that there are leaders and then there are leaders amongst the leaders. And we're going to see here this, this evening in Acts chapter 6 and then on into next week in Acts chapter 7 that Stephen is one of those men or women in the Bible that was a leader amongst leaders. You, you put him even in a group of leaders and he's going to ascend. Now, up to this point, obviously, he didn't have a major part to play in the church. But he's going to ascend very quickly because already he was looked at as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And he must have also, verse 3, been a man full of the Spirit and of wisdom because that was part of what they were looking for. So notice, because they handled this issue, this situation, this problem, the way God would have wanted them to handle it. Notice the result, verse 7. The word of God continued to spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly, and even a large group of priests now became obedient to the faith. You see the influence? Do you see the attraction, if you will, that the church had because they were it wasn't that they didn't have any issues to deal with. It wasn't that they didn't have any problems that came up. It was how they handled them so effectively and so decisively and with such unity that caused people to go, I want to be a part of a group like that, you see. Now let's look for the rest of our time tonight at Stephen a little bit closer. Because now, verse 8 says, now Stephen... Again, a little bit more than the others. Full of grace and power was performing great wonders and miraculous signs amongst the people. Did you notice a phrase that keeps being used that we've already talked about? Go back with me to verse 3. They, they were looking for people full of the Spirit and of wisdom. 
Keep the word full in mind. Then you go down to verse 5. Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Again, that word full. And now verse 8, full of grace and power. Full, full, full. Meant this guy, along with these others, they were filled with God, if you will. Well, here's the challenge for us. If you and I are going to be filled with God, that means we've got to be emptied of everything else. And so often we're so full of ourselves that God can't get in there, or we're so full of the things that the world is offering to us that God can't get in there. What made these men so effective and so powerful was that they were filled with God and godly things, full of wisdom, full of the Spirit, full of faith, full of grace and power. And, and can I say, verse 8, one of the things that I love here is this. This verse tells us that Stephen was a man that was powerful. He, he had a lot of spiritual power, but he held it with such grace. Because the word grace here means that even though Stephen was a very powerful man and could have wielded his power uh, in, a, in a lot of ways that would have been, you know, destructive and self-serving, he was a very sweet, kind, and gracious man, even though he held such power. Well, who's that remind you of? Jesus? <laughs> I mean, obviously, the Lord of glory who held all this power, and yet when he walked on earth... He was such a sweet, kind, and gracious person, even though he held all the power of the universe. And God wants his people to be like that, men and women who are full of power, but also sweet, kind, and gracious as we yield and wield that power. Notice, too, as Stephen started to ascend and started to step up and become a little bit more involved, and God was using him more because it says... He started to be able to perform great wonders and miracles among the people. Guess what it invited? Opposition. Mark it down. Again, God's not going to prevent opposition and challenges and all that from coming, but mark it down. When you and I take a step up or a step forward or a step out for God and say, God, I want to be more involved. I want to serve more. I want to minister more. I want to do more in your kingdom. Look out, because as soon as you and I take that step and God starts to work in and through us, here comes the enemy. And we better be ready for it, which is why we better be full of God, because the enemy's going to come after us. And notice how it came after Stephen. Some men from the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, as well as some from Cilicia and the province of Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. Yet, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Because he was full of God. And they really, it wasn't a fair fight. Because they really weren't fighting and attacking Stephen. They were fighting against the spirit of God that was in Stephen. And that's not a fair fight, man against God. God will win every time. You don't have to turn there because I'm running out of time. But listen to these words of Jesus to his followers in Luke chapter 21 that goes right along with where Stephen was here. Jesus says, for I will give you the words along with the wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Do we trust him to do it? Are we filled with him so that when opposition comes, the words that are coming out of our mouth, we know are words that are filled with his wisdom and filled with the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. Well, 
when the enemy can see that they cannot make inroads into the church or into our lives by fighting fairly, then they'll start to fight unfairly. So notice what happens, verse 11. They secretly instigated some men to say, we have heard this man speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. Then they incited the people, the elders and the experts in the law, and they approached Stephen, seized him, and brought him before the council. They brought forward false witnesses who said, this man does not stop saying things against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him saying that Jesus the Nazarene will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. If the enemy can't get us by fighting fairly, the enemy will start to resort to unfair tactics. Which is why, again, you and I better be full of, of God. Because if we expect life to be fair, especially when you and I, as his children, are putting ourselves out there to be used in his kingdom, and God is using our lives and the life of our church to influence and impact this world, oh, mark it down, the enemy's going to come, and he's not going to fight fair. And we better be in a good place, in a very confident, strong place, spiritually speaking, or else we will crumble and, and be crushed under the pressure and the intimidation and, and the manipulation of the world and of even Satan and all his minions that are going to come against us. See, this is a great chapter in reminding us that Christ's vision for his churches, he wants his people like Stephen to step up and step forward and step into it. But he's also not going to sugarcoat it. He says, you, you step in and, and I start using you, guess what? The enemy is coming after you. And you better be ready for it. Well, verse 15. All who were sitting in the council looked intently at Stephen and saw his face was like the face of an angel. Now, what's that mean? Well, let me tell you what I think this means. First of all, I don't think any of these people had ever seen the face of an angel. I know I have not seen the face of an angel. Well, I take that back. I think I might have. It wasn't what I thought it was. But I don't think that they're necessarily saying Stephen's face reminds us of an angel as much as what they're saying is this. There's something about his countenance that's different. There's something that he has on the inside that affects what he looks like on the outside. And as I've studied this, and I've studied this verse for hours upon hours, here's where God landed me with this, and I want to share it with you tonight. We wear our faith on our face. Let me repeat that. We wear our faith on our face. The way we appear to others externally, outwardly, is directly the result of where we are with God and our relationship with God and our fellowship with God and our alignment with God internally. See, we can say, well, my relationship with God's an invisible thing, it's a spiritual thing, it's in the spiritual realm, yes, but the evidence of it can be seen externally. And Stephen is a great example of that. We wear our faith on our face. 
So the challenge for me is, as I move through the day, and Nicole even prayed about this, everywhere I go, can people see my faith just by looking at me? Do I look all sit-soaking sour? Or do I have the joy and the confidence and the peace of God and, and all of that to where it literally affects my countenance? It affects the way I look and the way I even appear to others, you see. This is what I think they saw when the Bible says they looked intently at him and they saw the face of an angel. Stephen was the real deal, the genuine article. What he was on the inside was just overflowing on the outside. So let me just quickly recap. We're going through the book of Acts looking at Christ's vision for his church. And here we come to a chapter where the church has an issue. It has a problem. How are they going to deal with it? How are they going to resolve it? And Christ is so pleased by the way they chose to resolve this issue. It wasn't about taking those who had already been given some great responsibility and leaving their post to deal with it. No, it was about them just being part of the solution to find those who didn't have a part to play yet to step up and take this and, and meet this need un until something else could be done or others could be found. And they did it with such unity. They did it so decisively. They looked for the very best. And so, again, God blessed his people. But we also saw here at the very end that as Stephen, one of those seven, just started to ascend in the church and, and started to step up a little bit more, oh, here comes the opposition against him. And yet Stephen was more than enough because he was full of God. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of wisdom. He was full of faith. He was full because he had emptied himself of himself. He had emptied himself of everything the world offered him, and he filled himself up every day with God. That's Christ's vision for his church, that we be filled in him. Well, let's pray. God, I thank you tonight for this tremendous chapter that, Lord, should really inspire and motivate us to be like this church, to handle our issues and our problems and our situations that arise in a manner very similar to the way they handled this issue a couple thousand years ago. And I pray, God, that, that all of us would strive to be like, like Stephen and others, that, God, we're, we're full of you. And also, God, that we could have the, the confidence, if you will, and the understanding that the apostles had, that they clearly knew what part they were to play in the body. They clearly had a confidence of what you had called them to and what responsibility they were to have. And there was nothing that was going to pull them away from that. That they knew that they just needed to do a few things and to do them well, and that they needed to be fixated on those things, that they needed to narrow the focus of their life, and they did it so well, and the church flourished because of it. Oh, God, that we would be a church filled like that, where each of us learn to know what our part is and we throw our all into it, God. So continue, God, to use 
our time on Wednesday night to build us, to grow us, to make us more into the church and to the people of God that you want us to be. Thank you, God, for what a great group came out tonight. And I pray, God, that not only would this continue, but, Lord, we would continue to grow. And God, bless us, we pray. Shower your favor upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Hope to see many of you back on Sunday.